in the fourth week of a series that we're calling Foundation. And uh, our goal is to walk through some foundational beliefs about Christianity. And we've, we've spent three weeks talking about God. We started by talking about God the Father. Uh, then we talked about God the Son. And then last week we talked about God the Holy Spirit. And what we want to do today, now that we've discovered who God is, is we, I want to talk about who we are as humans. And I've, been, I've titled this message, Being Human. Not human beings, but being human. But before we do that, I want to review a little bit uh, of where we've been so far, just so we have a little bit of context. In, in learning about who God is, we, we talked about first, the first week, who is God the Father? And we said that, that we have to understand that God is creator. He was there in the very beginning. He, he was the, uh, the, the, the force or the power behind the created world that we see. And in fact, many of the songs that we sang this morning were celebrating that created world, that God looked at all that he had created, it says in Genesis chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, and he saw that it was good. And so God is creator, and then God is eternal. That is to say that the Bible begins with the words, the in the beginning God. In other words, the Bible does not seek to prove God's existence. The Bible assumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God. So God is creator. God is eternal. And then we, then we introduce this term called Trinity, that God exists as, as one God but three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and while that can be difficult to really wrap our minds around, and we, have some, we, we talked about some illustrations that maybe are helpful, ultimately what the doctrine of the Trinity means for us is that God is relational. That, that before God ever created, there was a perfect unity and relationship between the three persons of the Godhead. And so that person of God and persons of God, his love and that perfect unity overflowed into a created order that, that love inherently wants to be shared and be in relationship. And so God is deeply relational. And then we went one step further and we said, not, not just that God is relational, but God is, God is love. Uh, and we made a distinction between God uh, about what it means to say that God is loving and to say that God is loving is to take what we understand about love from all the cultural messages and then apply it to God, which will lead us to all types of errors. And the difference then between God is love, which means if we want to understand what love is, we need to look to God the Father. That's where we were in the first week. In the second week, we talked about God the Son, or Jesus. We talked about him being divine and human, and this fact that he is 100% divine and 100% human allows him the... the, the it was, it was that very fact of who he was that allowed him to win our salvation. Then he now is interceding on our behalf. The, the God, is, God the Son is for you. He loves you. He's praying for you. He's rooting for you. He wants you to break that addiction. He wants that relationship to be reconciled. That God the Son is for you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And he will one day return as king. And then last week... Um, if I'm not careful, I'll just preach all three of these sermons again. And I've got way too much that I want to do today to, to do that. So um, interestingly enough, the first two weeks of this series had four points. And I know that you're not supposed to have, ever have four points. It's always three points or five points. Uh, and, but, but I had four points. None of them started with a, the same letter. And, and, and so it was just like I was really falling off the, the pastor horse. And so, so last week... Last week, we really got back on, and we talked about the spirit 
cycle, the spirit cycle, and it was three points, and they all started with the same letter. (laughs) And the spirit cycle is this, that first the Spirit of God wants to purify your heart, and after he has purified your heart, the Spirit of God wants to prompt you toward very specific obedience or, very, uh, or, or to levels of greater obedience. But sometimes the error that we make is we ask the Spirit of God to micromanage our decisions. And I made a joke about, where should I eat for lunch today? Wendy's or Chick-fil-A? And the Spirit of God is saying, it is Chick-fil-A every time. <laughs> every time, no matter what. Um, and so... Sometimes we make the mistake of asking the Holy Spirit to micromanage our decisions, but God doesn't want to micromanage your decisions as much as he wants to purify your heart. If he will purify your heart, then his promptings will come and he'll lead you to greater levels of obedience or he sometimes will prompt us toward very specific obedience. But we shouldn't look to the Spirit of God to micromanage our lives. And then, of course, what this does is this produces fruit in our lives. So that's where we've been uh, in talking about who God is. And today, let's talk about who we are. You know, one of the core questions a lot of people are asking and have been asking for a long, long time is, what on earth am I here for? What on earth am I here for? And uh, Rick Warren's best-selling book called The Purpose-Driven Life really addresses this question. In fact, that question, what on earth am I here for, is the subtitle of the book and seeking to answer that question. And uh, you may not know this, but The Purpose Driven Life, how many of you uh, have read The Purpose Driven Life? Okay. How many of you like have the book, but you've never read it? Okay, yeah. So that's like me. You know, people walk into my office and they see like rows and rows of books and they're like, have you read all of those? No. This is my wish list. Like, I should read that. And there have been books that have been sitting on my shelf on my should read list for a long, long time. But I, I have read Purpose Driven Life. It is the best selling nonfiction hardcover book in history, selling over 30. How many? Quali- Come on, some of you are laughing at the qualifiers. It's like, it's the best selling nonfiction hardcover released in December <laughs> book ever. But it has sold tons of copies, 32 million copies. It has recently been re-released with additional material. Uh, And the book says this, that we are designed for five things. What on earth am I here for? I'm designed for five things. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, which is growing in faith, then ministry, which is giving my life away, and then evangelism, which is bringing more people into the faith. Those five things. Uh, I find Rick Warren's book to be tremendously helpful. Uh, But my goal this morning is not to rehash that material, nor is my goal today to try to make it through an entire book's worth of content in a few minutes in a sermon. What I want to talk to you today about is the human experience. The human experience. Because when we look at these five purposes, they they sort of sit, uh, they, they can sit disconnected from our lives. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about, about being human. And my goal then is to place you firmly within the story of the gospel and to ask the question, why does Jesus matter? When it comes to being human, why does Jesus matter? Uh, and to do this, to talk about our experience of being human, I want to look at the 
uh, experience of the very first humans, Adam and Eve. And so turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this is the easiest scripture to find that a pastor has ever announced. So if you're not quite sure where things are, Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning. It's the first chapter of the Bible. And uh, for those of you that have smartphones or tablets with you, uh, if you have the Bible app, the Holy Bible app that's published by Version, if you go to the live section of that app, uh, and then it should find your location and uh, be able to pull up our outline right away. But uh, if you can't, just search for Emmaus Road. And uh, the sermon outline is there. The scriptures are there. And the cool thing about that is that you can actually add your own notes in addition to my notes and then email them back to yourself for safekeeping. Uh, so we encourage you to be a part of that uh, if that's helpful to you. But uh, let's read together Genesis uh, chapter 1. Uh, and I want to start with verse 26 and read through verse 30. Uh, 26 through 30 of Genesis chapter 1. It says this. Then God said, let us. This, by the way, is the first evidence of the Trinity. Right here at creation. Then God said, let us. The three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the earth and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree... Uh, And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And it was so. When we, in the first week of our series, when we talked about the Trinity, I said that we shouldn't think of the Trinity as a hierarchy. That is to say that we shouldn't think that there is a a particular sort of level of authority within the members of the Trinity. That God shouldn't be consi- God the Father shouldn't be considered like a number one, the coolest, and then just right underneath him, but almost quite as cool because we center our worship around him as God the Son, Jesus. And, and then we we tend to think in hierarchical terms where we say, well, God is of course you know God the Father's in charge and. God the Son is really important. We send our worship around Him, but, but rather quite mysterious, and maybe the lesser of all the three is God the Holy Spirit. And I said we shouldn't do that. We should rather think of the relationship of the members of the Trinity in a circle. So while we shouldn't think of the Trinity in terms of a hierarchy, God does establish at creation a very clear hierarchy, and that is this. He sets up and He establishes for us a very clear hierarchy, that goes something like this. He sets it up and he says, at the very top is creator. Can you see it? Hey, good deal. And then, as the crown of creation, the only members of all of creation to bear his image are human beings. And so we have Creator, and then we have man or human. <laughs> Make sure you're awake. 
And then we have, and then we have the creation, right? I mean, we're called to rule over creation. God gives all of creation to us to, for food and to manage and to steward and to watch over and to rule over. There's a very clear hierarchy that God sets up at the very beginning of all creation. And if you honor this hierarchy, you will find yourself to be as Adam and Eve were when this hierarchy was created. And that is in perfect union with God, in perfect union with one another, and in perfect union with the created order. And union being we are over it in the hierarchy. We manage it. We steward it. We order it. All of these kinds of things. And so there's a very particular kind of hierarchy. And the hierarchy tells us that as we sit in the middle of the hierarchy, one of the primary purposes of our life then is to bring worship to the creator. The one in whom we bear his image. And so I agree with Rick Warren's book when he says that you're, what on earth are you here for? What is the experience of being human really like? That we, primary to that is that we are to worship. And did you know that everybody worships something or someone? You know, some people say, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not religious, so I don't worship. And that simply is not true. We all worship something or someone. And in fact, if you, if you were to track world history as far back into history as you can go, you will find that there is not a single culture in history that does not have some sort of practice of worship, some sort of expression of worship, that I'm going to look outside of myself to worship something or someone, whether it's this created idol, whether it's a, a man-made thing. And then what's popular in our culture is not to look outside for worship, but now the predominant message is we need to worship ourselves, that we ourselves are God. But in fact, the created order, the created hierarchy tells us that we are to operate or that we are to direct our worship toward our creator. And worship is this. Worship is recognizing worth, first of all. You don't worship something that you don't think is valuable. Worship is recognizing or ascribing worth. And so if we look and we're, say, we're to say that we are to worship God, this hierarchy tells us again from the very get-go, the very beginning of the story, the, the thing is, is that we are to ascribe worth to the creator. We are to see God for in all of his worthiness. We are to see that he is greater than us. Greater than us. And while we, that may be very easy to admit and, and sort of say, I wonder how much of our lives are operated in the fact that if God were to say, do you really trust me? Could we really honestly actually answer, yes, I trust you. You are greater than I am. So worship is first describing worth. And then second, second of all, worship is giving allegiance giving allegiance. It's first, yes, this, this thing, this person is valuable. It's worthy. I want to ascribe it worth through my worship. But worship doesn't end there. Worship is to go on and then give my allegiance to that thing or that person. 
And so we give allegiance to God when we see that God loves us, when we see that God desires relationship with us, and when we give ourselves back to him completely. And some of you remember that very first time when you did that, when you saw the worth of who God is in his son, Jesus Christ. And then your response was to offer yourself back to him. If God has loved me this much, if God has done this on my behalf, I can't help but then offer myself back to him. That's first seeing worth and then second, giving allegiance. Giving allegiance. God, you want you now, I want to give myself to you completely. You are now in charge. And this, of course, draws us back to the fact that love, true love, inherently desires to be shared. To be shared. And so the perfect love that was shared among the persons of the Trinity overflowed into creation, sharing the love of God, pouring it out into creation. And then God now invites us back to participate in that same love and relationship. God is love, God is relational. The very fact that God exists as Trinity points us to the fact that God is inviting us back in. Are you with me? And so uh, there's this. Uh, so, so we're made to worship. There's this um, worship song that I have fallen in love with called Great Are You, Lord, and it's by this band called All Sons and Daughters. Listen, do yourself a favor, and right after church, and if you get bored during church, load up the iTunes store <laughs> and, and look up All Sons and Daughters and download every song, every song. It just doesn't matter. You need every song that All Sons and Daughters has ever written and recorded. Anyway, they, you know, I was chatting with them and they were like throwing a little commercial and we'll throw you. No, that's not how we went. <laughs> anyway, they have this song called Great Are You, Lord. And there's this line in it that says, it's your breath in our lungs. So we poured out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. This is worship. In fact, uh, Popular speaker and author Louis Giglio said, Worship is giving God his breath back. You were designed for worship. And I want to ask you this morning is your worship misdirected? Have you messed up the hierarchy? Are you ever tempted to offer worship to yourself? Are you ever tempted to worship the very thing that we are to rule over, the creation? Have you gotten it out of order? Or is the hierarchy established from the very beginning of the world intact? What I want to um, demonstrate to you today is that this perfect union at creation is actually a great age of innocence. That we have creation, and with that, there is innocence. This is part of the human story. The Adam and Eve, when they were recognizing this, oh. (laughs) You got to help me out. That's why I turn my back and check. All right. Can you guys remember that? Pretty difficult, I know, but all right. Okay, good. Creation, innocence. When Adam and Eve were honoring this hierarchy, 
They had access to the tree of life that is in the middle of the garden. They had all the beauty that life had to offer. They had perfect communion with God, with one another, with, their, with the created order. All the, all the fullness of God and the presence of God was at their fingertips. How many of you remember a time in your life when there was nothing wrong with the world? Because some of you are like, I I can't remember that. But I would I would argue that the experience, the human experience of Adam and Eve, is in fact not just their story or their experience, but our experience. All of our experience. That there was a time in your life where you you held on and and captured this this pure and this beautiful innocence about you. That that your mom and dad loved you. They cared for you. You you had friends. You had all these things. Everything was right with the world. You were confident. You were unembarrassed. Right? You weren't aware of all the social nuances of our culture. That there's a particular way that you should dress. That there's a particular way that you should talk. You, you weren't aware of any of that. And it was just this, this beautiful age of innocence. Jaden this week was riding her bike with a neighborhood boy. And I don't like neighborhood boys. <laughs> like, my, my daughter is four. And a boy comes around. And I'm like, uh-uh. You know? Don't you go riding your bike up in this block. There is a daddy on this block. You know, and so, but I tried to overcome that, and I tried to be like, hey, little man, who better leave really soon? What's your name, you know? And uh, so, so they're, they're riding these bikes, and, and, and hearing these two kids talk, age four and age six, was quite refreshing and quite interesting but it reminded me that Jaden is still in an age of innocence because he would say things like, you know, I'm better than you on my bike. Look how fast I can go. And he'd like zoom around, you know. And, and Jaden would just say, well, I'm just learning. <laughs> and that was it. Like pure, confident, unembarrassed, You ain't got nothing, little boy. It's all good. I mean, that is beautiful innocence. Someone says that to me, and my spirit is crushed. You know? Are any of you like that? You know what? I'm better than you. You're really not that good. (laughs) Innocence. All of us have lived that part of our human story. But when we get the hierarchy out of order, things go really poor for us. In fact, I would argue that almost all sin could be traced back to getting the hierarchy out of whack. Out of whack. In fact, let's 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 continue in the story of human experience from Adam and Eve. Let's read Genesis chapter three. Turn over to Genesis chapter three, one page, okay? Yes, sorry to make you work so hard. Genesis chapter 3, I want to read the first 11 verses to you. Uh, It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? You know, the enemy still uses that trick. 
Like you've received this word from God, you're confident in it, you're living in sort of this, this little microcosm, this age of innocence, this pure obedience before God, and the enemy wants to come in and steal that away. And his first words are, did God really say? Did God really say? That you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, I love this. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from, implicit in this statement is, all the trees in the garden. I mean, the, 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 the doubt that the, the enemy is trying to bring is, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? And the woman says, actually, God has allowed us to eat from every tree in the garden, with one exception. But God did say, you must not eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. That's a temptation to move against the hierarchy. Creator, God, man, creation. And the devil says, actually, if you do this, you'll be like God. Boom. We're messing up the hierarchy. Knowing good and evil. Now, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And so she also gave it to her husband who was there with her. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. This is important because the last verse of chapter 2, which we didn't read, 2.25 says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And they felt no shame. But then after sin comes along, their eyes were open, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made covering for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that a picture of innocence? Right in the midst of innocence lost. I mean, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? I mean, that's beautiful. Totally unhindered presence of God. Well, when they heard that, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? You see, Adam and Eve get things out of order. They eat the fruit hoping that it will make them equal with their creator. And any mistake in the hierarchy causes havoc in our lives. And popular now is to put creation above the creator, or at least equal. Or popular now is to make ourselves God, or the same mistake that Adam and Eve made, that at least we can make ourselves equal with God. If we're not, create, if we're not, if we're not greater than God, at least we can make ourselves equal with God. But this will always This will always wreak havoc in our lives. And I want to say to you again, isn't this the human experience? We get things out of order. I don't know about you, and I can't speak for you, but I'm not perfect. And I don't imagine that you are either. We get things out of order. And not only are we sinful, but isn't it true that in relationships, we take the blunt end of people's sin? Not only do we sin... But if you're in relationship with someone, you have also taken the blunt end of their sin. And so we live in this world 
where we get the hierarchy out of order. And while creation is an age of innocence, sin causes wounds. Sin causes wounds. And with the wound comes the loss of innocence. Verse 225, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then when I heard you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? That's innocence lost. I asked how many of you remember a time in your life when there was nothing wrong with the world and I might turn that around and ask you a similar question. Do you remember the first time that you realized the world wasn't perfect? And it may be that for some of you, your very first memory is a, is a memory precisely because it's a wounding. A wounding of some kind. It may be, and any kind of wounding is a tragedy. It is a tragedy when we lose our innocence. And that's why when I'm, I'm watching my daughter with neighborhood boys and she hasn't lost her innocence. She's confident, unembarrassed. Who cares if you're better than me? I'm just learning. What? Wouldn't that be great to capture some of that in our own adult lives after we've lost innocence and we've been wounded? But losing our innocence is a tragedy, and sometimes it's a little T, and other times it's a big tragedy, T. Maybe maybe your best friend moved away, and that was your first sense that the world isn't perfect, that that there are relationships that, that are so good and yet don't last forever. That there's a such thing as, as broken relationships. Best friend moved away. Maybe, maybe your wounding was your parents hurt you in some way. And all of a sudden you learned that your parents weren't perfect. Perhaps... In your life, it was a capital T. Maybe you were abused physically, verbally, sexually. Maybe it was something your father did. Maybe it was something that your father didn't do that wounded you. Maybe it was your peers at school that said something. They said that thing. And at that moment, something inside of you died. And you lost your innocence. You became, you, you got the blunt end of their sin and it caused a wounding and you lost your innocence. Or maybe it was someone that was supposed to be there for you and protect you but abandoned you instead. You see, I, I, I've entitled this message Being Human because I think that the experience of Adam and Eve is actually a universal experience. They have an age of innocence, and then through the fall, they're wounded and they lose that innocence. Who told you that you were naked? And they reject the hierarchy that God had established and God had set up. And all of us have a wounding. Every single one of you here today, maybe, maybe you've been very, very blessed. And in your life, all you have are some little T's. But maybe all you have are the capital T's. And your heart is broken and you struggle 
and you struggle and you struggle trying to make sense of how all of this could happen to you. The thing that we can learn from this is that sin wounds us and that sin has consequences. You know, we try to dodge this in our life and in our culture, don't we? The sin has consequences. We try to convince ourselves otherwise. We try to diminish the truth, but yet it still remains. All of us here have been wounded by sin, and sin has consequences. Verse 14 and, 7, 14 and 15, the consequence of their sin is that the serpent has to crawl on his belly for the rest of his life, and there will now be enmity between, placed between him and the woman. This has very real-life application, by the way. This is why little boys hunt snakes and play with them. And little girls go, ooh, right here. It's in the Bible. There will be a broken relationship between the snake and the woman. I thought you guys were coming along with me a little bit more than that. So let's, let's bring you back. <laughs> There are consequences, though. The woman then will experience pain in childbirth. All the moms. All the moms went, don't remind me. Verse 17 through 19, the man must now work for food. By toil and the sweat of his brow will he eat his food. And all the guys were like, I hate yard work. And landscaping is the devil's work. (laughs) Turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. Is this helpful? I'm going somewhere with this. I know I'm taking the long way around, but Genesis 22 and 23 says this. And then the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. You see, the very thing that he was enjoying in all of its abundance and innocence because of the sin and wounding he lost. He must now not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden and to work the ground from which he was taken. You see, I believe that um, after innocence and then after the wound is struggle. Is struggle. That all of us in some way, as a result of our wounding in our lives, enter into a season of struggle. And this is where we live most of our lives. Is, is we're struggling because once we've been wounded and we've, we've, what we once had in our innocence where, we, where everything was perfect, where we had this confidence, where we were unembarrassed, where we, had this, we experienced great love of the people who loved us, where we experienced the protection of the people that were supposed to protect us. When we had this age of innocence and then through the wounding and the sin, we lost it. We enter into a struggle to return to the innocence. We realize what we lost. 
The very thing that they enjoyed in abundance was robbed from them. He shall not reach out his hand and drink and eat from the tree of life. And so I would argue that it is out of struggle in our lives that addictions and other sins are born. Let me explain. In our desire to return to the innocence of a perfect relationship that maybe we once had or maybe we once idolized or maybe that we once had with our parents where everything was right in the world, in our desire to return to that perfect relationship, I will go to images and videos hoping that they will provide that sense of relationship. I want so badly to return to a time of my life when I don't have the pain of those words, where I don't have the pain of those abandonment. And so I will turn to that substance because it dulls the pain. It is in the struggle that sin and addiction is born. I don't want to be hurt like that again. I I was enjoying this age of innocence, and then I was hurt in some way. And so out of that, the result is I'm now going to shut myself down emotionally. And while this protects me from hurt, it also robs me of love and makes me incapable. You see, we struggle to return to innocence. I mean, we struggle. We desire to go back there. This is what it's like to be human. And then struggle looks like this. Struggle is this sense that you have deep inside of you that everything is not all right. Struggle is this sense that I'm not the man or the husband or the father. I'm not the woman or the wife or the mother or the friend that I know that I should be or I know that I could be. I'm not the Christ follower I know that I should be. I don't, I, I don't succeed in my career like I know that God has uh, entrusted to me or enabled me to do i I don't there's this thing that there's always more there's something around the corner that it shouldn't be this way that's the struggle anytime you sense it just shouldn't be like this that's the struggle of something you lost from your innocence because of the wounding in your life and the wounds are as numerous in this room as there are people i could name my wounds and some of you would be like That's ridiculous. How could you possibly be wounded by that? And then you would tell me a story about what you went through. You see, all of our wounds are different, but we're wounded nonetheless. And with the the wounding comes the struggle and a longing to return to innocence, a desire for restoration and a desire for things to be made right again. Anybody identify with this? Some of you are like, I thought the gospel was good news. (laughs) It is. It is. Because right in the middle of your struggle enters the Son of God to answer and to redeem 
some of that struggle and to provide the very thing that you long for from your wounding. This is, in fact, the beauty of the gospel and why Jesus matters. The reason that Jesus matters is because the God-man who is fully divine and fully human can not only identify with your wounding, but is capable of bringing restoration out of it. That's the beauty and the good news of the gospel. Is that in the midst of all of this, while we tend to live a lot right here, we long for restoration. We long to move out of our struggle and back in to innocence. And in fact, we see this right in the scripture that they enter into this season of struggling. They're kicked out of the garden. They enter this time of struggle and they desire to return to that which they lost. But my driving point this morning is this. This is not their story. It's your story. And it's my story. And it's what it means to be human We have all experienced an age of innocence when everything was right in the world. We have all felt the wounds of sin and lost that innocence. We all long for the innocence to return and desire for restoration. This is the human story. This is the human experience. Innocence, wound, struggle, restoration. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is our restoration that Jesus is our rescuer, that Jesus is our salvation. Jesus matters because he is the answer to the struggle. And while I've said that there are tragedies in our life with some with a small T, others with a big T, I want to say this, that through the power of the blood of Jesus and his presence in your life, the capital S struggle can be over. This struggling, this unrest, this, 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 this boiling up of our soul that everything is not right. In the Redeemer, the big S can end. That's the blood of Jesus. But the small S will always be there until his restoration is complete in the world. That you will find yourselves continually in the struggle and you will find yourself continually in relationship with the restorer. We struggle here, God restores it. A new struggle comes, God moves to restore it. That old one comes back, God restores it. We're in this balancing act between struggle and restoration and thank God for the restoration Amen? This is what it's like to be human. And I would encourage all of you today to not only identify the areas where you struggle so that you may allow God to speak into those areas and redeem them, but I would, I would encourage you to take a good hard look 
at the hierarchy of creation that was established from the very beginning and say and ask yourself, have I gotten this out of order? Have I made myself my own God? Have I moved my worship from the creator to the creation? Am I properly in relationship with God? Am I properly in relationship with other people? And am I in proper relationship with that which God has asked me to oversee? And in those moments and in those words, we can find probably a lifetime of application. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.